I have an exercise for you here this morning, and I don't mean the kind where you've got to do sit-ups, but I do have an exercise I'd like you to partake in, young and old. Uh, I have a six-year-old even in the room. I want her to be a part of this, too. Get a piece of paper. If you've got the, the bulletin, you can write on the front of it. If you've got the, the notes that come with it, uh, break that out. If you've got a notebook of some kind, a piece of paper, a scrap that you can write on, use that. What I would like for you to do is for you to write down every excuse that you have for why you don't pray, for why you don't pray as often as you should. Now there will be a long, awkward silence while you write. I want you to legitimately write down the excuses that you have in your mind. Our senior pastor is not writing, so I'm watching him. He's got his pen out. Let me supply you with a few excuses. I did a survey of random people around church this week. Excuses we typically use for why we don't pray. One is that we forget. Another is that, well, I I don't have time. Another excuse uh, that's often used is, I don't really know what to pray about. Um, Also, is prayer really doing anything? That's another excuse we use. Another excuse, I, I don't know how. You know, I, don't, I don't know how. We have many other excuses that we use, but here's a few that I'd supply for you. These are common. This is the, the normal human experience. We have many th- excuses that we prop up, that we put in front of us, and that when we give ourselves an excuse, we are often very likely to not engage in the process at all. You've already decided you can't do it, You've already made up your mind, I'm not going to get there. Uh, You've made up your mind in various ways. With various excuses, you knock down one excuse and another one props up, like a reverse domino effect. And then we fail to engage in prayer very much. With these excuses in mind, please open up your copy of the scriptures to Ezekiel chapter 1. Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 1, is where we will pick it up. Now it came about in the thirteenth year, on the fifth day of the fourth month, that while I was by the river Chebar among the exiles, and let me pause there for a moment and give the context, this is an uh, exiled, deported, suppressed and oppressed people of Israel. They have been decimated by the Babylonian army. They seem to be of no account. And if there is a time when people should be despairing, the people of God should be despairing in the history of Israel, this is one of those times. This is a people that could very easily be wiped out. This is a a man who ought to be thinking like we might. God doesn't really care. He might be thinking many things such as this. He is not in an esteemed position. 
Instead, he is in exile out by a river in Babylon among the various exiles. Then it says this. Then everything changes with a comma. I was among the exiles, and the heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God. If you'll scroll down just a couple of verses to verse 4, he says this, I looked while he's standing by this river. Behold, a storm wind was coming from the north, a great cloud with fire flashing forth continually, and a bright light around it, and in the midst, something like glowing metal in the midst of the fire. He's painting a picture for you now as you go through this text of things that are not able to be fully described. Things that he cannot wrap his mind around. Things that are overwhelming for him. But he gives us a, a, the most thorough picture of what a vision of God is like in Scripture. And when he moves from the, the far away view of seeing this storm coming at him, he then starts to zoom in very tightly and he gets below the throne of God and he says within it, verse 5, there were figures within this storm resembling four living beings. And this was their appearance. Now, let me pause there for a moment. When you think of angels, there are certain things that come to your mind. Uh, when I think of angels, I think of little cherubs that are on Hallmark cards, you know, that are usually naked and, and puffy and chubby, right? And they got, a, they got a bow and an arrow, you know, and they're, they're doing something useless. Or maybe they're, they've got a harp they're not playing, and that's the image I have, precious moments, is the image that typically comes to mind. If you look at Renaissance art and stuff, you'll see these little angels sometimes, and you're like, what are those? Because when I look at Scripture, this is a very different picture that's about to be painted. It says they had a human form. So, so far, you're sticking with precious moments version, but it changes immediately in verse 6. Each of them had four faces and four wings. All right. The narrative just changed. So, Ezekiel is having a normal day out by the river, probably praying to God. And in the midst of his prayer, God comes. He shows up. And what is it that he sees? He sees this storm, this, this bizarre sight that he's fixed on. He sees fire within it. And he sees these beings that, that have four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight and their feet, verse 7, were like calves' hoof. And they gleamed like burnished bronze. Under their wings and on their four sides were human hands. And as for their faces and the wings of the four of them, and their wings touched one another and their faces did not turn when they moved. And each went straight forward. And as the form of their faces, each had the face of a man and all four had the face of a lion on the right side of the face and of a bull on the left and all four had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces. Their wings were spread out above, each had two touching another being, and two covering their bodies. And each went straight forward, wherever the spirit was about to go, and they would go without turning as they went. In the midst of the living beings, there was something that looked like burning coals of fire. So in the midst of these beings that are being described, you have something else within that. There's this burning coals of fire, like torches darting back and forth among the living beings. And the fire was bright and lightning was flashing from the fire. And the living beings ran to and fro 
like bolts of lightning. Now as I looked at the living beings, behold, there was one wheel on the earth beside the living beings for each of the four of them. And the appearance of the wheels and their workmanship was like sparkling barrel, which comes in various colors. And it's not easy to know exactly what color it is, probably green, sparkling barrel, and all four of them had the same form and their appearance and workmanship being as if one wheel were within another. So you have wheels within wheels here at this point. Whenever they moved, they moved in any of the four directions without turning as they moved. And as for their rims, that which is within the wheels, they were lofty and awesome. And the rims of all four of them were full of eyes round about. Whenever the living beings moved, the wheels moved within them. And whenever the living beings rose from the earth, the wheels rose also. Whenever the spirit was, wherever the spirit was about to go, they would go in that direction. And the wheels rose beside them, for the spirit of the living beings was in the wheels. Whenever those went, these went. And whenever those stood still, these stood still. So whenever the beings were going about, these wheels were also going with them, and they stopped and moved with them in unison. And whenever those rose from the earth, the wheels rose, closed beside them, for the spirit of the living beings was in the wheels. Now, over the heads of the living beings, there was something like an expanse, like an awesome gleam of crystal spread about above their heads. Under the expanse of their wings were stretched out straight, one toward another. Each one had two wings covering its body and on one side and on the other. And I also heard the sound of their wings, like the sound of abundant waters as they went. And the voice of the, like the voice of the Almighty, the sound of tumult, like the sound of an army camp. Whenever they stood still, they dropped their wings. And there came a voice from above the expanse that was over their heads. Whenever they stood still, they dropped their wings. Now, thus far, all we have looked at are the beings that are beneath the throne. Again, rewinding, because it's easy to lose context as I read all of that. You have Ezekiel standing by a river as an exile, as a nobody, of no account. In the, in the grand scheme of the world, no one was looking to Ezekiel for the answer. And then God shows up and shows himself. And right now, all we've looked at are the beings that are beneath the throne. And they're so overwhelming that he gives us this immense description of what they're like. He then says in verse 26, Now above the expanse was over their heads, there was something resembling a throne. And Daniel, he says, the throne is on fire. Like lapis luzite, which is blue with like veins of gold throughout it. Like lapis luzite in appearance. And on that which resembled a throne high up, was a figure with the appearance of a man. And now you come to it. Now you start to reach the apex of what's going on. You see these beings that have been described so much, and then there's this expanse over them. It's almost like these beings are holding that up. I don't want to say that's exactly what's happening, but that's kind of the imagery we're given, and we're given the picture of a throne, and now we're giving the, de the depiction of God, one who had the appearance of a man. And then I noticed, verse 27, from the appearance of his loins and upward, something like glowing metal that looked like fire all around within it. 
And from the appearance of his loins and downward, I saw something like fire. And there was a radiance around him. As the appearance of the rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the surrounding radiance. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and I heard a voice speaking. Return to your excuses for why you don't pray. And then start to imagine, start to cross them off as you realize how stupid they are. I don't have time to pray to a being such, to this almighty God. I don't have time. Whoever it is you think is wildly important in this world, if it's the president or the last president or whoever it is that you think is important, if they are showing up to your house this afternoon for lunch, are you going to be like, you know what, I don't have time. You know, whoever it is you think is, is incredibly important in this world, richest man in the world, wants to show up at your house. Elon Musk wants to come have a chat with you, wants to invest in you or something like that. And you're going to say, you know what, I just don't have the time. I can't fit it in my schedule. You know, I got a busy life. I got things I got to do. You see how petty and absurd this is? And you start going through one excuse after another. I forget what? No, I'm assuming I am talking to the beloved children of God who have embraced Jesus Christ, who have decided I will follow, who have decided that I live for the glory of God. I'm not speaking to the atheist. I'm not spe speaking here to the agnostic who doesn't care. I'm speaking to you as a child of God who has propped up excuses for why you don't pray that much, for why you, you fail to enter into that discussion with God. Now I realize something. We encounter a spiritual barrier. We go to war, not with weapons of this world. We go to war with spiritual forces that would love nothing more than for you and I to have zero conversation with God. And I actually think the hardest endeavor you will ever, the hardest task you will ever enter into is to try and grow in holiness. If you want to be a, a tremendous power lifter, you got resistance, but nothing like spiritual. If you want to be the greatest musician of all time or whatever it is you think you want to be, there is, there's nothing that has the, the kind of resistance to it like the spiritual realm that you enter into. I realize that's there. But I also realize that when we prop up excuses for why we don't pray and we fail to fight it with truth, when we fail to open up the word to give us a vision of God again, then what we are doing is shameful. There's no reason, logically speaking, why we shouldn't be a people who are constantly committed to the effort, to the, to the longing even to pray to God. We find excuses because we don't dwell on who our God truly is. We have puny visions of him. We have puny understandings of how awesome he is. And then when he commands us to pray, we stub up. I don't want to. 
I don't feel like it. I mean, if we're really honest when we're writing down excuses and you weren't worried about people looking over your shoulder and looking at what you're writing down, then honestly, many of us, it would, the, the excuse would be, I don't feel like it. Admit it. Quite often, that's why we don't pray. Or, I don't think he can do anything about it. How many problems in your life do you have that honestly, when it comes down to it, you are communicating, God can't do anything about this. And you know how you know that's what you're thinking? Because you don't pray about it. If I believe that this is who God is, then why would I have any doubt of what he can do? If I believe this is who God is, then I have zero concern about the, the petty problems of my life or the big problems of my life. I know that this God can do abundantly beyond what I ask or think. I know that he can do that. I have, I have a glimpse of who he is. And I should be shaken. Ezekiel here has the proper response. He falls on his face. As we all will. In chapter 2 of Ezekiel verse 1, he says, And he said to me, Son of man, Stand on your feet, that I may speak with you. Well, that seems a lot easier said than done. Uh, to come into this type of overwhelming presence of God, I mean, do you think you would be able to stand up? He says further, verse 2, And as he spoke to me, the Spirit entered me and set me on my feet. Now notice that. God told him to do something. Ezekiel did not have the capacity within himself to do it, and God gave him the power to do it. God does not ask us to do things. He does not give us the power to do. He tells us to pray without ceasing. How many problems do you have in your life? If we were to take that piece of paper that you wrote your excuses on, flip it over, and start writing, how many problems do you have in your life? Instead of counting your blessings, count all your problems. Name them one by one. If you're really going to list them all out, every issue you've got, from hair falling out to, to hair growing on your ears, you know, and on and on it goes. How many problems you got in your, in your work, in, in your culture, and on and on we can go. How many problems you got? How many of those problems are you dedicating to God in prayer? And how many of those are you acting like you're on autopilot and as though this God doesn't exist? That he were not alive, that he were not on this throne. So when God asks us to pray without ceasing, he's not giving us some, some mild suggestion. He gives us an audience in this room. Let that sink in. When we are praying, what is it that you think you are playing at? This isn't talking to anyone else. This is not interacting with any other human being. This is not interacting with even just a force somewhat greater than yourself. You get audience with the Almighty. Now think about how incredible that is. And not only on another hand, how absurd that is. I mean, important people in this world don't call me up and ask for my opinion on what they should do. Sometimes I sit there and I watch a movie with the kids 
You know, and while we're watching, I'll say, well, they should have done this or that, or one of them will say the same kind of thing. And our frequent retort back to one another is, well, they didn't call you and consult you on how they should have filmed the end game for the Marvel Universe, right? I thought it was dumb. They're messing with time. And I'm like, Pfft. but nobody consulted me. Why? Because I don't matter. I'm not significant in that room. I'm not sought after. Nobody's consulting me on all a million different things in this world because I'm not important enough for that. I don't matter. So how crazy is it that I should be let in this room? And then how absurd is it that I say, you know what? I got other things to do. You know? I, I, don't, I got a busy schedule. You see how silly our excuses are? I mean, when I started writing down, I knew I was going to preach on prayer and all that. When I started writing down excuses, and, and then I, my mind went to Ezekiel 1. That's why I take you there. That is the immediate rebuke against the goofy arguments. I don't know what else to call them other than foolish arguments that I will prop up. I need to destroy those excuses. I need to assault them with a holy violence. Tear that nonsense down. Remember what it is that I have in Christ. I'm only allowed in this room. I only have audience with God, not because of merits of my own, not because of anything that I could possibly do, but because Jesus Christ is my mediator. He takes me in that room and gives me audience with God. Forget some person of this world. Forget some president or king or whatever it is that we think is important. You child of God, favored one, have this audience. Don't sin by neglecting it. So I move from this to then Jesus' instruction on prayer. In Luke chapter 11, if you would turn over there, Luke chapter 11, verse 1. Luke chapter 11, verse 1, it happened while Jesus was praying in a certain place. After he had finished, one of the disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. Fascinating bit of information, little tidbit trivia. The only thing that the apostles specifically went and asked Jesus to teach them to do was to pray. They didn't ask to be taught how to walk on water. That would be high on my list. How'd you pull that off? Can I do that one too? Yeah, I think that would come in handy. Uh, there's a lot of other things that, that happened throughout the three and a half years of Jesus' ministry, and this is the only thing they come to him and they ask him to do. This says something, I mean, a lot of times that we go, we see the faults of the disciples, but I find this a wonderful mark. Uh, I don't, I've had people ask me to teach them many things in life, but I've never had anybody come and say, hey, will you help me learn how to pray? Uh, maybe that's a mark against me more than anyone else. They've heard me pray and they're like, ah, this guy's got problems. That could be. But it is incredible that what they see is this Messiah, this Savior, and his prayer life is so incredible that they want to know how to to pray. Teach us to pray. 
And then Jesus does a very awkward or very strange thing in their time, and he gives them a very short prayer. They were used to the godly people, that is, the people that were perceived as godly. I should correct that. Standing on street corners, lifting their hands, making a sound, and making sure everyone saw them, and then they would pray loudly so everyone could hear. That's what they're used to seeing. That's how the godly people act, so that you know how spiritual they are. And then Jesus gives them this simple prayer in verse 2. He says, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. He starts with the word Father. He starts with that exalted position. They didn't think of Father as casually as we might. Father was someone that was supposed to be respected. It's in the Ten Commandments, for goodness sake. Honor Father and Mother. Uh, it is not, though, how they typically thought of their relationship with the Almighty. They might have, as good followers of God in this time, the disciples might have been thinking of passages like Isaiah 6 and Ezekiel 1 and Daniel 7 and other places. And they might have been thinking of the transcendence and the awesomeness of God. And that is in there. Certainly that is in there. That never leaves our mind as we would pray to him. But there's also this wonderful reality of what Jesus says here, and that is we can call him Father. You have a different audience with Dad than you do with other people. It doesn't matter who, how important the person is. It doesn't matter how, you know, how lofty they are. If their child wants to talk to them, there is something there. There is a relationship there. There is an immediate audience if the father is a good father. Father, hallowed be your name. Holy is your name. Again, this is from the Ten Commandments. We don't take the name of God in vain. His name is holy. He is transcendent holiness embodied. His name represents who he is, his character, his nature, his attributes. Holy be your name. Your kingdom come. What is he saying when he says your kingdom come? When we say that, when we pray that, what we ought to be understanding as we say it, rather than just uttering some words here that have become somewhat trite in our minds, is when we say your kingdom come, we are seeking to see God's name revered. To see his rule established and his will accomplished in the earth. When I say your kingdom come, I want to see God lifted up. Isn't that what we crave as we look around in our nation, in our world? Instead of people blaspheming and mocking God and saying all types of sinful things regarding him, wouldn't we long, don't we long to see his name reverenced? I hate that the worst words in society now, the things that are considered the biggest words that we can't even speak, are racial terms 
Because what that tells me, instead of the name of God, because what that tells me is our great fear is man. Our great concern is whether we appear racist or bigoted or something like that in the eyes of people and we will throw around the name of God like an after-dinner mint. It means nothing. I've seen kids' shows where they wouldn't even think of dropping the N-word or some other awful ethnic slur or anything like that, but they'll throw the name of Jesus or God in there like it doesn't matter. Don't we long to see his name exalted and never even thought of as a byword? I mean, there's one thing you can say at least about the Muslim culture, and that is they don't let you mess with their Messiah. You don't get to mock Muhammad without retribution. But we Christians, people mock God in front of us, and we just, meh, people do that. I'll just keep watching this show as they trash my God and my Savior. Absurd. His name is holy and should be treated as such. Emphatically in our lives. We want his kingdom to come. We want to see him lifted up. That's the goal of our existence, is to magnify him. Even all the way down, as Paul says, to our eating and drinking. Furthermore, we want his rule established. I long to see the day when Jesus is on the throne. Amen? Maranatha, may it be now. May it be now. We long to see his rule established and to see his will done in the earth. To see sin eradicated. To no longer have to deal with the repugnancies that we see around us that are so awful. And I don't mean just the big things that might be in your mind like abortion. I mean down to your selfishness with your neighbor. I mean down to your mean words to your spouse. To see all of that gone, his will being done. To never see a child sass their parent. I don't know about you, but that bothers me. When I'm out and about or anywhere, and I see some kid, some mom says, hey, come here, son, and the kid goes, Meh, and sasses the mother, that bothers me. I've seen kids hit their parents right in front of me. That's hard to watch. I helped out at the kindergarten when Isaac was little, and uh, we would go in the class, and there was one boy who would stomp on the teacher's feet and stuff like that, and I, she told me about it, and I was like, well, man, I hope, in my head, I didn't say it out loud, but in my head I was like, well, if that happens in front of me, I'm going to have a really hard time controlling myself. That's, how do you let that go? I want to see his will done on the earth. Long to see that day. That's what we're praying for when we say your kingdom come. And then he shifts and he says, give us each day our daily bread. Now that's a little bit harder to pray. He doesn't want riches or poverty. He doesn't want one extreme or the other. Because if I have too much, most likely I'm going to become exalted and think, is this not Babylon the great that I have built? Like Nebuchadnezzar said. 
I'm likely, if I get too much money, as we all know, to, to fail to be generous. It's amazing when you see statistics on the number of people who give, the people who give money to causes and, and things around the world, aiding and all of that, it's usually poor people. Isn't that amazing? Percentage-wise, they give a much greater amount. I don't want to be puffed up by my riches. Give me this day my daily bread, not more than I need. This is the idea of in the wilderness when they were given manna. I don't need a humongous closet full of, of manna, and if I do, it will rot. What I need is what I need for today. I don't want to starve because on the other extreme, if I'm, if I'm so poor that I'm starving, I'm likely to profane God by stealing. This exact principle is taught in Proverbs chapter 30, verse 8 and 9. Jesus is extending that principle here into the New Testament and enshrining it as something we ought to be praying. Look, I don't want to be really wealthy. The more I've seen really wealthy or really famous or something like that, the less I want anything to do with it. The corruption that it tends to bring into the soul is not something I, I long for at all. But I also don't want to be destitute. I don't want to be so poor that I can't make it, that I feel like I, I can't get by. Give me this day what I need, what I need to sustain me with what I need that I can glorify you today. And forgive us our sins. Man, that's so easy to pray. Man, that's easy to pray. When you know yourself, when you gaze into the word, when you consider even Ezekiel 1 and you consider the loftiness of God and that it almost immediately brings us to the, the sinfulness of self and I realize I don't belong there and, and you start to feel the weight of sin. You look into the law, you look into various places, you feel condemned by sin. It's so easy to pray, forgive. Forgive me. But notice the contingency here, for we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Ha, huh. that's, uh, that changes it a little bit, doesn't it? One of the dawning lights in the last several years for me was um, as a dad when my kids seek forgiveness. Uh, they've sinned against me in some given way, whatever it is. And they come and they ask for forgiveness. Even before they're there, you're ready. Even before they come in the room, you want restoration, right? You long to have a healthy relationship with your kid. Even parents I've known through the years who really don't even like their kids. If they could. Oh, there's a lot of people that don't like their kids if they're honest, uh, that they would love to have a restored relationship with that child. We long to forgive our children. And I'm reminded as I say that right back to the first word of this prayer, Father. God is eager to forgive us. He stands ready to forgive us by the work of Christ alone. And then what ought we be doing as a natural result of that kind of forgiveness against that kind of God. I ought to be able to see whatever they did against me is nothing compared to what I've done against God. There's no comparison. I don't care 
what atrocity you want to bring up that happened in your life. It's nothing compared to what you have done against God. And until you get that, you will always be the unmerciful servant who is forgiven billions and then goes out and chokes the guy who owns you a hundred bucks. Until you get that, it becomes very hard to ever forgive other people. And you don't know my whole story. I've grown up around here, but you don't know my whole story. You don't know the things that have happened to me. You don't know the sins that have been committed against me by various people. You don't know the things that happened in my childhood and so on and so forth and other awful things that I could mention and all that. Have I been able to forgive those? Not before Christ. Not before I saw how much I sinned against God. Once I get a grip on how awesome God is, how lofty he is, and what he's forgiven me, now I'm ready. Now I'm able to forgive because my perspective has changed. Look, whatever it is that I've done against you is nothing compared to what I've done against God. And if I can wrap my brain around that, now I can move on to forgiving others as I should because I want that right relationship with God. I want that forgiveness from God. I want that relationship where there's free exchange, where I don't have another propped up barrier. One of the excuses we will use why we can't pray, why we're not praying, is because I don't feel worthy. Here's the good news. You're not. You never were. Never will be. On your best day, you don't belong in that room. How arrogant are you? On your worst day, you don't belong in that room. You're only there by the work of Jesus Christ. And because of what he has done, he calls you worthy. He clothes you in righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So you can stand there and you can boldly speak. Paul tells us, or Hebrews tells us to go boldly into the throne room of God and offer up our requests. It's bold just to be in that room, right? Just to be speaking to him. So Jesus gives us further instruction in verse 5, after saying about, you know, lead us not into temptation, which I'm going to skip for now. He goes to verse 5 and he says, he said to them, suppose one of you has a friend. Let me give you a lesson now that I have given you this brief prayer. Let me give you a lesson because I know you're going to have objections to even this prayer here. Suppose one of you has a friend and he goes to him at midnight and he says to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine is coming from a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And from inside the house, he answers, do not bother me. This is midnight. Some of you go to bed at like nine, eight o'clock at night. I know a couple people who go to bed at like around eight, nine o'clock at night. Now imagine you're that guy. If you're a night owl, this doesn't count for you because you're already up, right? And if you don't have kids, you got to rewind to when you did or something or fast forward to when you do or whatever. That's the illustration here. Midnight. Someone's knocking on your door and goes, hey, man, I need some food to feed a guest. Like, stop it. Go home, you weirdo. You know, go to, eh, forget it. I was going to say go to Cub Foods, but that's not their name anymore. I don't even know what the name is anymore. But Go to the grocery store, get some food. He says, do not bother me. The door has already been shut and my children and I are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. He's giving him, he can do this, because he does in a minute. But he's saying here, look, I'm in bed. My kids are in bed. 
I have no desire to do this. You're, you're a nuisance to me. <laughs> and I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up to give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. So I will help you out because you won't leave me alone if I don't. I'm not going to help you out because you're my friend. I'm going to help you out because you're annoying. And because my, I want to go back to bed. It's midnight. I got a day tomorrow. I got stuff to do. My kids are now all up. Thanks for that, bud. You know, all the whole house is now awake. All right, fine. I'll get you the food. Will you go away now? Why give us this story after he just gave us the prayer? Isn't that an interesting story to follow up with? He wants us not to lose heart. How do I know that? Verse 9, he says, So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Asking here. Uh, you can pray about something and, uh, and then do nothing about it. You ever done that? A lot of young people will be praying about finding a spouse. Lord, I hope you'll provide a woman for me. And... Uh, I'm going to sit in my room and watch Netflix and eat Cheerios and just hope that you bring her in the room. What is that? What is that? See, most of us know better than that. And we recognize the need to extend ourselves in some way, to put ourselves out in some way, and realize praying itself, that's part of it. But you also need to go. You also need to do, you need to act. And that's the next ver or verb here. He says, and it will be given to you. Uh, seek, and you will find. Seeking. I pray that I, I lose everything. I have to have things in the exact right spot or it's, pff, I'm lost in life. If my keys get moved, if my kids take them and put them somewhere, I'm lost. I lost a comb. I used one specific comb. I'm needy, whatever. And I had this one comb I used, and it had been moved this morning. And it wasn't enough. And I actually, I was walking around the house trying to find my special comb, and I prayed about it. <laughs> Legitimately prayed about it. But you know what I was doing while praying? Seeking. I wasn't standing, Lord, let the comb fall upon my head because I don't want to put out any energy. You know, I got these calories I want to keep to myself. I don't want to burn them off or anything. You know, I, I, no, I didn't do that. That's absurd. You go around and you look. And then further, knock. I say to you, ask, it'll be given, seek, and you'll find knock, and it will be open to you. Um, here's where I struggle. I hate putting people out. I hate inconveniencing people. It's a thing, of my, I hate feeling like I went to a party I wasn't invited to. I hate feeling that way. I've been in that room too many times in life. And I don't, I just, I don't want anything to do with it. But God here is pushing us to this. Can you imagine how obnoxious this guy is at midnight showing up? I think, think about this. You are asleep. You're out. The kids are all bundled up. You know, maybe they have a family sleep pile by the way he's explaining this. You know, everybody's together. I don't know. But you're all there, you're in bed, and then you get a, what? Like, and now you call out, yeah, 
and it's your friend, Bob. Not to pick on any Bobs in the room, but it's your friend, Bob. He says, hey, you got any food? I'm like, what? No. And he goes back to bed. Gosh, man, what do you want? I told you I want bread. I have a cat. And um, I don't know why we did this story. But anyway, we have a cat. And when I wake up in the morning, uh, I walk out, and I'll go in the kitchen if I dare. And that cat immediately, meow, 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 meow. And he doesn't quit. And he doesn't quit until he is fed. And even while you're walking over with the food for the bowl, meow, meow, and you're like, shut up. I'll like grab his mouth, and he's, you know, muffled meowing. He doesn't quit. And then that cat, even after being fed, is not satisfied. What else does he want? He wants everyone in the house up. So he goes around the house, meow, 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 and he goes to each room. He goes to where the girls are in their room, meow, meow, goes to where the boys are, meow, and you're like, will you shut up? He's a great alarm. He's obnoxious. And I don't want to be that guy. Do you? I hate being that guy. I hate being obnoxious. And I hate feeling like, God, I'm nagging you about this. But God tells me to come. He tells me. And he says in other parables, the same principle. Persist. Persist. Continue at it. Stop losing hope. Maybe there's about 15 lessons you need to learn while you're standing there praying. Right? Maybe there's a whole lot of things you need to figure out. I mean, God doesn't delay without reason. And one of the reasons why I think, as a dad, I think like this, one of the reasons why I think he makes us persist in things many times before he grants it is because we are still children in many ways and we have hobbies that we like that we're not really going to pursue all that much. You know, kid really wants a guitar. He plays it for, what, three weeks? And he's done. Right? And then he moves on. I, you know, I really want to be a skateboard champion. You know? And they do that for a month. And they move on to this next thing, and they barely do it. And on and on. We, we cycle through different things. The average college individual, before they get their bachelor's degree, changes their degree, their major, five times. We jump around. God makes us persist in a process. And part of that persistence develops within us a consistency of prayer. If God takes away that nagging thing in your life, maybe you don't pray anymore. Maybe he's got that problem in your life because you don't pray. Maybe he's got enough pain in your system to get your attention so you go, you know what? I should be on my knees about this. And not only that, after I get up off my knees, I should then move in a direction toward that which I'm seeking because I know he's a good father, which is the next struck sentence which is the next thing he gets into. He's a good father. He doesn't give us scorpions when we ask for an egg. He doesn't give us evil because he is good. So we walk in that direction knowing that he is a good father. We pray, we drop to our knees, literally many times, to pray about a thing, and then we move, and we act, and we persist, and we encourage one another with such words. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Be merciful to me, the sinner. May we not be hearers only, but be doers of the word. 
We pray in Jesus' name.